Face. I am Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at thecoreface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you. Hi, Siri. I'm really excited to be co-hosting this conversation today with uh, Steve Schmida. And also you're launching your own podcast at the same time on uh, corporate activism. And so we thought of uh, releasing this episode on both of our podcasts. Uh, and you, you and Steve have actually known each other for almost 20 years. Uh, and the three of us share this common link uh, of having graduated from the Fletcher School's GMAP program. And personally, I'm really excited about this conversation um, because I, I want to hear Steve's perspective on how he's helping companies with their sustainability and climate and ESG commitments through projects in rural communities and in emerging markets and how he's making sense of stakeholder needs and local dynamics in uh, designing programs that create value in very difficult places. Hello, Philippe. Great to be with you at the Coalface again and really happy to be co-hosting um, this episode and to be launching this also on my new podcast platform called The Corporate Activist. Um, so, yeah, I thought it would be great if we could release this on both of our platforms and because I feel like the topic has some really great crossover. So Steve Schmida, as you said, will be joining us. He is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of Resonance, which is a frontier market solution firm. Um, Steve was working out of his spare bedroom of his home together with his wife, Nutsbool, and bootstrapped Resonance into an award-winning global consulting and advisory firm with more than 100 staff worldwide now. The organization has offices in Vermont, Washington, D.C., and Seattle. Resonance clients include Fortune 500 companies and international donor agencies, along with nonprofits and foundations. Steve has worked in more than 40 countries across Africa, Asia, Eurasia, Latin America, and the Middle East. Prior to founding Resonance, Steve lived and worked for eight years in Russia and Central Asia, where he established and led programs for the Eurasia Foundation and the National Democratic Institute. Fluent in Russian, he holds a master's degree from Fletcher, as we know. And more importantly, Steve is also the author of the new book, Partner with Purpose, which is a step-by-step -step guide to planning, launching, and successfully maintaining cross-sector partnerships. So we're very happy to welcome Steve with us today. Sri and Philippe, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for, for this and the opportunity and the podcast in general. I'd like to start a little bit with your background, um, just to let the listeners know a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, particularly how you came to have an interest in Russia and Central Asia. Uh, you know, so I was a child of the 80s um, and sort of the height of what we now know became the end of the Cold War. And I think it was that period that really started to get me interested in in Russia. I was a, I was young, you know, uh, 10, 12, 13 years old and started to hear all about this place called the Soviet Union. That was the the evil empire. Right. This was Reagan's era and, and, and all of that. And what happened was an interest in that 
the Cold War evolved into a interest in the culture. So I had I was very fortunate um, in 1989 or 90. It was in, while I was in high school, I got the opportunity to go on an exchange program to the Soviet Union and really just fell in love uh, while I was in Moscow and Petersburg with Russian culture, Russian literature, Russian art, all of those sorts of things. And so decided, um, you know, if I was going to uh, I was going to try to major in it in college, which at that time meant I could be a spy, a diplomat or an academic. Timing was fortunate in that the Soviet Union collapsed uh, while I was in, the, in, in university and and that opened up a whole range of opportunities. And uh, I had studied in Moscow in college for a semester, and then um, I had interned for a congressman. And the combination of the two suddenly made me uh, a good candidate to promote democracy around the world. And so I was hired straight out of undergraduate by the National Democratic Institute, which is essentially the international wing of the Democratic Party. I, I didn't know anything about what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, the, the, the only good news out of all of that is, as best as I can tell with the benefit of hindsight, nor did any, anyone else. Um, <laughs> and where did you land? I landed in, in Kyrgyzstan. So, um, not, not exactly the center of Moscow. <laughs> no, but in some ways, I was really excited. I didn't actually want to go to Moscow at that time. I wanted to go someplace like uncharted or un unfamiliar. And um, my boss gave me the opportunity. He said, you can go to either Baku or Bishkek. And as it happened, I didn't like the woman they were that, that would have been my boss in Baku. Huh. And so I chose, not out of any deep sort of uh, analysis or that sort of thing, I chose Kyrgyzstan and it really changed my life. I mean, I, I went for yeah. three months, stayed, stayed for two years, uh, met, met my future wife wow. uh, and have been going back ever, you know, ever, ever since. And can, can I ask you, Steve, if you could share some of your first impressions as, as a young young American growing up in a freedom-loving country, as we, we like to hear it, and your first impression of what was at the time the Soviet Union, what struck you? And then you were one of the few people who, who saw the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, so could compare the, the, the basically before and after. And I'd, I'd love to, maybe if you could uh, share some of your observations on, on that, that, that contrast. Yeah, I mean, I think in the before period, I mean, clearly you had this bizarre economic system. I mean, it, I, I had never taken, I, I was in high school the first time I went, but you had this strange system where you, um, there was a shortage of everything or shortage of most things that people would want and too much of things that people wouldn't want, which was quite strange to observe um, on the economic level. But on the cultural level, what was also really interesting during that time was um, there was an intimacy to the culture, you know, um, private life in the Soviet Union, because it was one of the few areas where you could really express yourself, particularly in the later period, right? Like 70s and 80s, um, was very, was very rich in a lot of ways. And then if you kind of go from after the collapse, say into the early 90s, it was just chaos, um, you know, and, and I think it's still the single largest economic and social decline in human history that's been recorded. And you saw that every day, right? So I, I you know, I was in Moscow one as a student in 1992 or three when, when the ruble just collapsed. 
that day and and prices tripled like literally you were going at the stores and people didn't know what to, how to price things they didn't know how to pay for things it, it, it was it, it was very very chaotic but it was also you know such a unique opportunity and such a unique moment in, in history where for the first time you had these societies starting to explore what it would mean not only to be independent in their own country, like Kyrgyzstan had not been a nation state in the modern sense, right? They, there had been periods where the Kyrgyz had been independent, but more as as sort of kingdoms or or realms rather than a nation state. And, and uh, that was unbelievably fascinating uh, to experience and, and, and to be a small witness to, I would say. And I imagine there were not so many other expats around, um, you know, even in Bishkek, um, you know, you were probably one of very few foreigners who were, who were there, you know, how receptive were they to the national democratic <laughs> Institute? Well, you know, it was funny at the time there was a small expatriate community. So there was like the world bank was there and a USAID was there doing privatization and kind of that sort of thing. Um, so there was a small expatriate community. I would say at that time, and even maybe to this day, to, to a great extent, Kyrgyzstan was remarkably open. Um, there was a real yearning. I think there was a real desire to understand how democracy would work. Um, and I think one of the challenges was and, and is in these situations is that um, no American alive has any idea how democracy was built in the United States. Right. We know how things run, but we don't know how things were built. And those are two. Uh, what I learned from the experience was those are two separate things. Like I remember working. My boss was um, he had been a staffer in one of the I think it was either Michigan or Minnesota state legislature and knew all about committee structure. Right. How to run <laughs> legislative committees. But he didn't necessarily know the origins of how those came about and how to build them. Right. And and that was really the, the question. First, before you run something, you have to build them and, and build the capacity of them. And I remember sort of a takeaway from that time was like I met. The, uh, well, another example of this, the, the, the Americans who were charged with setting up the Kyrgyz stock exchange were stockbrokers in the United States that had been their career previously. Well, just because you've been a stockbroker doesn't <laughs> have any idea how to set up a stock exchange. And they did. I mean, I, it just but lovely people um, and well. Um, and I put myself in this category as well. We just didn't know how to build some of these institutions. You ended up also spending even more time in the field. Um, and then you took the lessons that you've learned from that into, you know, building a new company. And I'm curious, like, what what did you see as this sort of need that you thought okay i've got i've gained some experience and I, I i can see how that might be something useful to other people what were what were those sort of gaps that you were observing in how america was doing development and how even corporations were coming into developing markets sure yeah so um just really quickly so when i left i i left ndi um at the end of 1998 and got hired um kind of crazily young uh, to become the director of the Eurasia Foundation. So I was 26, I think, at the time and had a multi-million dollar budget and a bunch of staff in Almaty and then later went with them to run their operations in Russia um, after that. And it was really 
somewhat in Kazakhstan, but really in Russia, where I started to see, um, we started to have companies coming to us initially for things, you know, I was running this grant making foundation, right? We were making grants to support education, civil society, entrepreneurship, local government, all kinds of stuff. And so companies were starting to come to us initially with corporate philanthropy asks, can you manage this scholarship program for us? Can you run this library, you know, library program for us? Which was great, you know, fine as far as it went. But then they would start to hear about some of the work we were doing in, in entrepreneurship and small and medium enterprise development and would come back to us and say, hey, you know, we just bought this, you know, uh, facility out in Siberia. We committed to the provincial, the, the Oblast government or the provincial government that uh, we would uh, use local suppliers, but we can't find any. Can you help build a local supplier network using small and medium enterprise development? Uh, like, you know, your, your expertise in that. And that was really, to me, the moment, the aha moment. Companies were starting to face things that we would now pr broadly put in the bucket of either sustainability or ESG. Right. Right. And the development community was starting to face a question of relevance, right? Like, it, you know, if you're in foreign assistance in most countries, now, foreign assistance is a rounding error in terms of foreign, you know, foreign capital flows, right? So in a place like Russia, it, it wasn't even statistically relevant, right? Like, you know, I, I remember I was interviewing a, 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 a Russian oligarch who I shall not name, but he asked what USAID's budget was, and he laughed when he heard the number and said, <laughs> oh, that's about the, 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 the budget for, my, for the fuel for our private jet fleet. Wow. Right. You know, and <laughs> if you're in develop at the time, especially if you're in development and you're just trying to get things done through traditional means, which is largely public sector from the public from the development side, there was just a question of relevance. How do you get something done in a place like Russia or India or Kenya or South Africa, these Indonesia, these really big places? And so that was the insight that led that, that led to to the, um, me wanting to start my own company. Tell us more about that. So, you know, you decided that, you know, there was something to do. And, and I believe um, you started this with your wife, Nazgul, uh, who is the current CEO of Resonance. <laughs> and you're still working together as a team. And we want to hear about that, too. <laughs> um, but what was your original idea with Resonance? What was what what did you think it could do? I think there were a couple of things, and and like a lot of things, there are, are mixed motives, right? Like there's the personal and the professional. Um, at the on the professional level, I really thought there was something that folks were missing around sort of using public-private collaboration to solve big problems, right? That that these were these were starting to become problems that no one part of society, if you will, could solve on its own. Right. So that that was the professional piece on the personal level. Um, one, I wanted to return to the United States and raise our kids in a community um, that I thought would um, be a good environment for them. So uh, we landed on Vermont, mm -hmm. uh, which is not a place where one normally goes if one wants to pursue a career in international affairs. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> to say the least. And, and so this is Canada, uh, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, exactly. Yeah, unless it's with Quebec. Um, but <laughs> so that then led to, okay, I've always, I've supported a lot of entrepreneurship programs. I kind of understand how it's supposed to work, but I've never actually done it. Yeah. And so then it was like, okay, let's give this a shot. And to be honest, the kids were young enough. They were two and four at the time that I figured if I totally screwed up and failed, we could go back overseas and I could recover financially to send them to university. Right. Like that was my, I was like, <laughs> I'll give this like a five year run. And if it's not working, we have to back, you know, we have to pivot uh, so that we can save up money for the kids to go to college. <laughs> Well, it seems like that it, it's it's a bet that's paid off. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about now you've got over 100 people working with you. You're you're in all kinds of um, countries doing a whole range of projects. So maybe tell us a little bit about what resonance looks like today. So I started off essentially on my own and then I started screwing up things pretty quickly on the administrative and operations side. And that's really where Nazgul stepped in. She's got a background in that and operations and finance and, and, and accounting. And she started to step in there and I, I, you know, she, then it just became obvious that she was better equipped to, you know, a company needs to build systems. It needs to build processes. It needs, you know, all these things. And she was much better equipped. I'm more the creative idea person, you know, uh, designing program strategy, that sort of thing, but not necessarily well equipped to deal with a lot of that stuff. And, and so if we fast forward to where we are today, um, we have really two major lines of business. Our largest part of our business is, uh, with the U S agency for international development and our work there consists mostly of work to promote public private collaboration. So what USAID will call private sector engagement, right? Cause they're looking at it from the public sector perspective. They're saying, no, we want to engage the private sector. So we do a lot of that both in Washington and in, in the field. Um, and then we have a second major bucket with USAID around innovation on, and entrepreneurial ecosystems, right? And, and that sort of emerged organically kind of out of the private sector engagement, but also my interest in those topics just generally. And I, we were able to kind of gradually build something out there. Um, and then we also have a small but really wonderful monitoring and evaluation, monitoring, evaluation and learning mm. practice um, that is just a natural complement to the, 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 those first two. Um, yeah. And then we do do some work in uh, innovative finance, but it's mostly to support the other uh, activities. So that's sort of business line one. And then business line two is with uh, mostly with large corporates, but also with some large, some larger NGOs and foundations. And that work is very much focused on corporate sustainability, but in, in some very specific ways. We tend to focus on helping companies build partnerships to solve big problems that are sustainability related or help them design programs that, again, that are dealing with challenges that um, kind of what I always say, bleed outside the factory fence, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have a water problem inside your facility, right? You're using too much water. You're not going to call residents, right? We're, it, we, and nor should you. We're not engineers. We're not, you know, we're not environmental um, uh, remediation folks, that sort of thing. But if you have, let's say, a, a, um, a water issue that's permeating into the community, let's say, um, your employees don't have access to clean water and you're trying to deal with that as part of right. your ESG goals, 
then that's usually when we're well equipped to get involved. And so um, on the, the corporate side, we have clients, everybody ranging from PepsiCo to Unilever, Cargill, Bayer. Um, we've done work with Google in the past. We've also got foundations like the Gates Foundation we've worked with. Uh, we're working with the IKEA Foundation right now, the Walton Family Foundation, um, but also some NGOs like WaterAid um, and uh, WWF. Um, and I think what brings it all together is probably 90% of our work is focused on how do we bring in others to collaborate to solve big problems that, that our clients are facing. Um, and we focus on the collaboration piece and the strategy piece and do support the implementation. Um, but it's really on, you know, they're in the driver's seat, if you will. We're not, we're not necessarily driving these things. And the companies reach out to you, uh, especially in like emerging markets or places like what are the gaps that, that prompt them to, to reach out to you? I mean, I think there's a few things and it's evolved over time. Um, I would say both as we've grown in, in sort of skills and sophistication, but also as, as frankly, things have shifted, um, in the, you know, in, in the operating environment, um, a lot of companies are reaching out to us because they have sustainable sourcing challenges um, in emerging markets. That's probably like the number one reason it's, you know, that they want to have, um, you know, they have a sustainable agriculture program and they they're having they have some challenges achieving their goals in emerging markets. Right. So the, the, they'll, they'll call us more recently. What we're starting to see are companies as Scope three emissions, which are the the emissions that are in your supply chain, uh, in a company's supply chain, are now starting to become more salient, right? The EU's essentially passed its regulations in the U.S. I mean, we're expecting them literally, I think, in the next month. They they keep getting delayed, but they're expected any time now. Um, for certain industries, that's the majority of their emissions, right? So I was on a call on Friday with a, a major company whose products you probably use every every day if you cook i'll, I'll leave it at that and um 94 of their emissions are scope three and most of that's on farm in emerging markets where they're sourcing their material that's a huge challenge um that they can't solve on their own because a lot of those farmers aren't just working with them they're selling to five others they may be selling to other companies, but they may also be selling into local markets. It's it's not something they have full control over. And so um, and they can't dictate terms and nor is it a good idea to tr even try. Right. And so the idea is to how can we develop a more collaborative approach to something like scope three? Some complicated issues you, you got on your table. And and I, I was just remembering um, the last time I think you and I met was actually in Afghanistan where you were trying to address something um, around uh, names of streets uh, in, in Afghanistan, which was uh, no small task. <laughs> uh, but I think you're not so much working in, in conflict zones anymore, are you? That yeah, I mean, I think the Afghanistan experience, I mean, it, I mean, look, first off, it's so tragic what has come to pass in the last 18 months, right, or 24 months. Um, and, but I think what we found uh, working in Afghanistan, we did a little bit of work in Somalia, was, and this is not exactly 
a revelation if you stop and think about it is that the types of work we tend to be good at, which re requires some level of functioning market, you know, a market has to exist. We don't, we're not necessarily well equipped to deal with high conflict zones um, where really the only rational investment is in very high margin, quick returnover type businesses like, you know, sort of um, facilitating trade and stuff like, you know, import, export, that that sort of thing. You know, we can do some of that, but we're just not equipped for it. And for me, Afghan last time I was in Afghanistan, that's when you and I, I think, saw each other in 2010. Um, or maybe it was 2011, something like that. Um, I came away from that trip very disillusioned. Yeah. Very disillusioned. And I was like, I, after that, I was like, personally, I'm not going to do any more work there. Um, and we gradually unwound our work. We did one small additional project after that, but, but we were out by, I think 2015 or 2016, we, we, um, we had really tried to wind down, um, and, um, yeah, it was a hard learning experience. I mean, I have yeah. to say it was, you know, cause you want, you see an Af a place like Afghanistan, the Afghan people are so delightful and yeah. so deserve to have normal, decent lives. Right. And the yeah. international community needs to support them. Um, but I, I didn't have the tools in the toolbox, right. It wasn't, yeah. you know, uh, I, you know, that, and I think, um, as hard as that was, I think it was the right decision, both to do right by the Afghan people, but also the American taxpayer, right? Like it would, mm -hmm. it would have been easy just to kind of make money or, you know, generate business that way. But, but I just didn't see it as, 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 yeah. as something I wanted to spend my time on. And so tell us a little bit about, um, running a company with your, with your significant other, <laughs> um, What's that like? And um, what are, you know, if you were to, to give some recommendations or some advice to other people who might be considering something, uh, what, what advice might you give? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think both of us feel it has been incredibly difficult. Um, and we like to say the, the business has thrived, the marriage survived. Right. <laughs> and um, it, it's really difficult because so just some things that, that, you know, uh, you know, my wife's the CEO, she has to make hard decisions at times. And sometimes those decisions negatively impact me or my yeah. work. And so I get annoyed. <laughs> it might still be the right decision, right. You know, for the business, yeah. it might have been the right call, but that, uh, that still, you know, is, is an issue. Or if one of us makes a mistake and the other is impacted, it's not like you can go home and have a shoulder to lean on because the other person is frigging annoyed with you, right? right. Like you screwed up and I'm angry. Um, and so I, I would say I, we always caution um, folks that, you know, folks will say, oh, you should separate work and your married life. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know of no successful couples who have done that. Um uh, working together you're like this. in it or you're in it or you're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think what does help, I mean, and this took us years, right? So I'm not, this is going to sound like I didn't, this just happened overnight, but it took like four or five years really separating out roles and responsibilities, right? Creating clear lanes. Um, and to be honest, we try to, you know, we work together but we try also to keep some distance, 
right? So that we're not meeting all the time. We're not, you know, she'll come to me if, if she feels she has to involve me in a decision and I'll come to her if I want to give her a heads up on things. And we're on like the extended leadership team together. But we really try to have some level of separation because it is really, really hard. Now, the plus side is, and there are a few pluses, is one, um, you know, you've got somebody who's really got your back, right? And both of us, I think, feel that way. And, and business partnerships are hard really, really hard. Right. Yeah. And so having somebody where there, there's, you know, core trust is is fantastic. And then the, the second thing I would say is it's also sometimes it can be really nice when you do have a complicated business issue that you kind of feel emotional about. It's easier to talk to them about it because they know what the business issue is, right? Like you can talk it through, you know, it's easier for them to empathize sometimes. Um, but yeah. We, we we definitely don't recommend it um, to others. <laughs> I we had to go back and do it again. I don't know. I mean, to, I'll just be really blunt. I'm not sure we yeah. could do it again. Yeah. And you also went through an interesting process of having to let go, right? When you realized that actually your 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 wife was emerging as the the better candidate. How, how did that happen? I mean, that that like I can. It's hard for me to fathom how how to do it. You know, how to let go and and, and trust. Yeah. It was extraordinarily difficult. And, you know, look, I'll be the first to admit I have an ego. Um, and so and and my ego is tied up with the, the, the business still is in some degree, but I think I've got much more separation from it now. And, and I think I've got maybe the ego a little bit better under check. Um, but it was very, very painful and difficult. Um, I had to come to realize a at an intellectual level. I knew I wasn't the right person for a lot of these things. And a lot of these things, I genuinely do not, not only do I, am I not good at them? I genuinely do not enjoy them. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and she does. Right. And so on, there's the intellectual level, but then there's the emotional level or the, you know, that, that took a lot longer. And I, I would say it took, it took probably two or three years to, at least recognize that I was that that there was this really needed much more intention around it and then probably another two or three years to really get the intention right right like so you know um we brought in um about six or seven years ago a, a vice president for government services that knew that was a huge step for us because it enabled me to step back from a, our biggest portion of our business and he knew far more I, because of the peculiar way my career had begun in international development, I had big blind spots and gaps in my knowledge. Um, I had incredible over skilling and or experience in some areas, but real gaps. And he had the full package and has been much better equipped. And so that allowed me to step back from that part of the business. And then it was ego stepping back from the lead. So I'm on what's called the extended leadership team of our company which includes like the director level, but I'm not actually part of the senior leadership team, which is the C-suite. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that I, it, it was a decision I made. Um, Nazgul was open to having me part of it, but I, I just felt it was, it was too much. And I needed to let, give Nazgul the space she needed to make the decisions, to not have an opinion about everything 
you know, for me, it was a life hack. I'll be honest with you. Like Mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was like, if I'm sitting in there, I I will express what I think. And (laughs) that, that is that helpful? Probably not when she wants to know what I'm thinking. She she knows where I am. <laughs> she knows where to find me, right? But it, it seems like it's actually was was good in, you know, in the way that you were able to kind of take those thinking and take those thoughts and put it into a book, <laughs> which um which is something that you did, I think oh, particularly over over lockdown. But you published um, a book um, about a year ago called Partner with Purpose. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what what's the message of that book and why did you think it was important to share those thoughts now? Sure. Yeah. You know, the book, I mean, you know, um, I. I think probably like a lot of folks in the Fletcher and GMAP world, uh, we love books. And so the, the opportunity to write a book was, 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 was very gratifying in a lot of ways. And what I wanted to do with the book was with these cross sector partnerships, there's a lot of writing and thinking from the public sector side, right? A lot of the development agencies have spent a lot of time, thinking about this, writing about it, there's a lot of academic writing about it as well. However, if you're at, let's say, the director or VP level in a company, there was nothing, right? You could read Michael Porter's Creating Shared Value, but you weren't at that level. That's a C-suite article, right? It has no applicability to anyone below the C-suite in terms of how you would actualize against it. And it's a great article. That, that's why I'm referencing it. So, I, it, you know, Um, but there was a need for sort of a practical, how to do these types of partnerships. And so what I tried to do with the book is sort of say, look, there are some, and this is not my framework. There are simple, complicated and wicked problems in the world, right? Simple problems you, you, um, you know, are easy. You just buy whatever the solution is complicated, you know, problems you may need to bring in some folks. And sometimes you need folks like us, you know, to do, you know, outside consultants and things, but it's like going to the moon. Once you do it, there's sort of a way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Complex problems are like climate change, right? Where, where you, cause and effect are not clearly uh, discernible um, and, and bleed over between environment, society, and that sort of thing. And I think the idea was to kind of get folks to think about that, then think about, okay, if you can't solve it on your own, how are you going to get this done? Right. And then sort of go through very brass tacks, very tactical, very simple. The other thing I really tried to do was the, and I say this with some love, but the development community uses language to obscure as much as it does to clarify. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there is a tendency in the development community. I feel to, right in a way that makes it very hard for outsiders to glean what it is you're actually saying. Sure. Um, and it's either written at too high a level or it's, it's written in language that, that, that again, is deliberately, maybe not deliberately, but obscures. I wanted to write this in simple brass tacks, you know, uh, the language <laughs> for everybody, you know, somebody coming in cold, who's not familiar, who maybe doesn't have a master's, could just pick it up and kind of run with it. And so that was the goal of the book. And, and, um, it's, it's been, it was, it was a lot of fun to write. I got to, to interview a lot of wonderful people. And I think to me, 
to me, the writing process was the two parts that were the most fun was one interviewing folks the way you guys are interviewing now. And I, <laughs> envious. Uh, not that you're interviewing me, but that, that generally you get to talk to folks because I, I think it's always a chance to learn. And then second was the sitting down and writing uh, the actual writing process. Everything else related to writing a book, which is most of it actually is not the writing of the book. Mm -hmm. um, is 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 okay you know you can kind of get through it but but it's not as fun like the promoting the book the editing the book the design of the book all of that stuff is wasn't as much fun but but it was really interesting to learn a lot of these challenges that you're talking about um around sustainability in in, in uh, rural communities ha have to do with um uh, understanding dynamics at the local level that are often very very difficult for somebody in a corporate uh, environment to, to figure out Uh, and very often, um, somebody in the corporate center will, will approach um, um, a community with a very sing like a single issue in mind, like I don't know like how to create sustainable livelihoods or maybe improve the environment. When in fact, stakeholders often have multiple needs, complex needs, and then there's the challenge of then intervening in, as an outside actor and involving yourself in a in a in the local dynamics. So, re really curious, like some of your maybe lessons learned in how. Um, yeah, how, how you get things done in, in fragile environments like that. And then also what, what the, the message of the, the book is to, to, to help people sitting in a, in, a, in a head office who have to grapple with these um, issues that they may, may not, not, not really have any familiarity with, actually. No, it's a, Philippe, it's a great question. And I think there are a few things that I always try to keep in mind. And, and I, I think we try to permeate throughout resonance and, and, One is around the sort of element of humility that when you're going in, into an environment, you don't go in with the solution, right? Um, you go in to listen first and meet people where they're at, right? And really try to understand. And that's local stakeholders, but that can also be your client as well, right? Because that's the only way you're going to understand the actual context. It's not to go in saying, I know it needs to get done Um, and a good example of this, you know, I, so I was just in Greenland for a couple of weeks, very interesting operating environment. You've got 50,000 people in an area three and a half times the size of Texas. Wow. It's an upper income country, but it has some developing country attributes um, because of its unique history. Um, and so, you know, going in, what did I went? to and talk to as many sort of entrepreneurs and small business operators as I could in the, you know, in the tourism sector, which is what our client uh, USAID wanted us to focus on. And I try to approach things open-ended. I don't go in with like survey instruments or things like that. What do you see as the biggest opportunities? What do you see as the biggest challenges? What keeps you up at night? And build, I think, that qualitative rapport and understanding and then it's our job to take all that qualitative data if you will and synthesize it into something that can make make some sense and so my advice to to somebody sitting in company headquarters is just because it's your problem doesn't mean it's other people's problems and other people don't necessarily want to solve your problems however if you're right. if You can contextualize your problem such that it's either a problem for somebody else or their opportunity. Then all of a sudden conversations can get much, much richer. But I think it starts with a level of empathy. 
I think it also starts with dignity. So I'm a big believer. The development community in particular loves this term beneficiaries. They'll talk Mm -hmm. about, oh, the beneficiaries of our program. I despise that term. I loathe that term. (laughs) And the reason why is no human being on this planet thinks of themselves that way. They might think of themselves at times as a citizen. They might think of themselves as a consumer, like if we think about these sort of big bucket type things. And I think there's dignity in being a citizen. And in a lot of ways, there's dignity in being a consumer, right? Because you're recognized by the market. Um, And I think thinking rather than approaching situations as coming in with the solution or the intervention, coming in to listen, kind of figure out where folks are coming from and give offer up tools that they then own and use and develop. And all you're doing is enabling, right? Like I don't consider residents like an expert firm. I consider us like an enabling firm, right? We enable others. It's not that we come in with the magic bullets uh, to solve all these things. And that's why people go, well, collaboration. Okay. Well, collaboration is really powerful when it works. And it doesn't work for every problem, and we don't recommend it for every problem. But for certain types of problems, it's probably the only way you're going to get anything done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think sort of humility, meet people where they're at, um, you know, and 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 as you were alluding to, recognize that that communities have complexity. And and just one additional story on this front. So. I, uh, a number of years ago, um, and I think I can talk about this because it was never any, it was all in the open. Um, I was asked by special forces to give training to their civil affairs units, um, which are the units that kind of engage with communities. And so I designed an exercise called, so you want to build a school. (laughs) And it was all about these guys going in and deciding that the community needed a school. And as soon as they decided they needed the community needed a school, everything went to hell because it's not their decision. Yeah. Right. And that was the lesson of it. You know, it was one of those things, you know, it was designed not to be winnable once a certain decision was was made. And I I did that a couple of years for a couple of years. It was popular. It was fun. (laughs) Um, But I think it's that mindset of like, don't come in with the solution. Come in to listen, understand and, and empower rather than, 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 than give advice. And I think that's such a great um, sort of place to come from and, and makes so much sense with my own experience in the work that I've done or in different places. And, and now um, we mentioned that we're, we're sort of co-publishing this podcast um, on my new podcast called the corporate activist. And so I, I wonder if you could tell us from your perspective like really, what is what is the response? You know, not so much the role, but but what is the responsibility of the private sector? You know, now in terms of changing the development space, because you know we're hearing all these terms like ESG and sustainability, and and you know it there is an expectation, you know, that some everything you look at that the that the corporation is. Um, looking at how they're acting in the world, they're looking at how they're interacting with all of their stakeholders. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's really meaningful and, and impactful. And sometimes it's just, a, you know, just some kind of claim that they can make that makes themselves feel better. And, you know, they're, they're, 
their customers don't know any better. So I'm just curious, like from your perspective, how, you know, what is the responsibility of, say, you know, a multinational out there or even an SME to um, to address their impact in the world? And, you know, again, what are some best practices you see other than kind of just this attitude that we've talked about of, of humility and and partnership? Yeah, no, it's it, it's a great question. Maybe start at like I'll start at 50,000 feet and zoom in really fast. So the way I look at the world is what we're trying to do right now is price in some externalities that were not priced in in the previous model, right? And and not because anybody 75 year in the post-World War II era had any nefarious intent. It was just they didn't know, right? It was an unknown. And, and whether that's on the environmental side, the social side, that sort of thing. And so if we take that, that sort of very broad view and then start to zoom in, companies act best when doing good is in their self-interest. Right. Now, how they define their self-interest can be can vary a little bit, but I see a number of drivers that that are contributing that contribute to doing the right thing, right? And and doing better, not just doing less damage in the world, but maybe doing more good. The first is obviously the investor ESG lens, but then there's also policy regulatory changes that you know we, we alluded to earlier but the eu is way out in front on this and i think the us is also moving in that direction the third piece is, is customers themselves are demanding it yeah. and then i would say the fourth piece that sometimes gets neglected but is one of the most powerful things that if you actually like take some of these like a corporate sustainability officer out for a beer they will tell you it's often their employees Absolutely. So there is a war for talent in the yeah. world. And to win the war on talent, uh, when you're going up against companies, you know, these maybe the big tech companies that can pay more, that Wall Street that can pay more, you have to offer something. And purpose and doing good in the world is, is one of those things. Um, and so then if you get down to, you know, if we go from there to, to, really what works. I think I'll use an, a, a, a very concrete and very live example. A lot of companies say they want to do gender equity, you know, are, are big on women empowerment and, and that sort of thing. And so they'll give money out of their foundation, right, to support this, that and the other. And that's fine. I, you know, no objection from my standpoint. But what we're doing right now with, um, with a partnership between PepsiCo and USAID is more focusing on something on it's been known in the development community that if you give women more decision-making authority on smallholder farms, incomes increase, educational outcomes for their children increase, health outcomes improve. It's one of the most powerful interventions. It's been known for 30 years. Well, taking that insight and bringing it into a global supply chain, right? Yeah. So we're working it's a partnership between PepsiCo and USAID to focus on women's economic empowerment in their supply chain. Now, the goal there isn't purely a sustainability piece. We've got a piece where we're trying to prove certain key business metrics, that it also increases yield, that it increases um, the quality and reliability of supply, right? Which we kind of can infer from the increased income that we know from the development side happens, but we wanted, but 
we have to make that material to to the company. Yeah. Well, we've gone through one growing season. We're starting to see some results that are really inspiring that we'll be sharing in the coming weeks. Right. Um, and if we can get PepsiCo to adopt this at a global stage and then maybe their peers, right, the impact on women is huge, right? I mean, it's, a, you know, because their buying power is enormous. And so I think th that's... I, I don't know if that's tactical enough. I can get more tactical if you want, but um, just tried to lay that out. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the point that you made about it has to be, you know, you can't just have your sort of sustainability officer sitting in their own, you know, bubble kind of doing some, you know, nice work and having some nice photos. The, the chance to actually have compounding impact is when it's in the supply chain and when it's part of your day-to-day -day operations. And I think that's a risk, right? That's a risk for a lot of companies to take, to open up their operations in that way. And as you say, add that level of cost, you know, into, you know, that environmental cost, that, you know, human resource cost into their pricing models. It's, it's, it's a big risk. It is. And I think you're seeing, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. But I, I do think because of these drivers, right, coming from different directions, I will tell you, most chief sustainability officers are also overwhelmed because they're getting hit right. from multiple directions at the same time. Um, and and that's no bad thing. Like I, I look at it from a societal perspective, this is a good thing. But but it is a lot for organizations to deal with and process. I, I find this example of, uh, of women empowerment absolutely fascinating. I, I was uh, catching up with a friend of mine earlier today uh, who's in the same space as yours, and he was saying that how tricky it can actually uh, be. Uh, he was giving an example of, of, of a company that that uh, produce, that uses a lot of um, uh, cacao, and they, they were really keen to get women uh, involved, but, but did it really from a from a head office mindset, which is they just wanted women involved in the value chain, and and um, they, they they were quite fixated on on uh, wanting to uh, involve women, especially in the 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 step of the value chain that is about washing, what uh, washing the the cacao, which unfortunately uh, exposes women to to sexual abuse actually in the community, and so it's kind of the worst place you could possibly uh, do do that, and that's obviously something that somebody from a kind of a marketing background, for example. Example, uh, would just not not realize at all. So there's there's also that that um, that drive to 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 focus on a single issue like women economic empowerment can, can come at the at the cost of, of kind of missing out completely the, the local dynamics uh, that that um, that are disturbed if you like if you, if you if you shift power from one group to the the other. Um, so I'm sure you've seen good examples of bad examples of interventions like that in your in your work. For, for sure. And I mean, I think in this particular case, we were very fortunate. So we brought in the International Center for Research on Women, ICRW, as a, uh, to help us with this exact potential potentiality. And it took us 18 months on the front end to design the metrics, what we were going to measure um, in the interventions for this exact reason was there was concern about it's not sufficient just to involve women, right? Um, and it's not even necessarily that we want to direct women to specific parts of the value chain. It's just increasing their role more broadly and allowing a self-selection process, you know, and self-filtering process to occur. I, I And again, I think it goes back to this question of humility. 
is if you kind of approach this with like, we don't know what we don't know. And, um, I, I think it can help, but these things happen. I mean, what you're describing, I I've seen, and I, I I've been involved in projects that have had those types of externalities. And as soon as you see it, you've got to look at it and go, okay, this is not the right approach. Let's take a step back. And I think a lot of times it comes down to not directing the, not telling people what they, where they should go, but rather giving them the tools to go where they want to go and allow a self-selection process. Cause those women will choose higher value things to do because they're smart, but they may choose the place that's safe. Right. And then you may need to do things, you know, the company may need to do things like we're in this particular project doing things like making sure there's, um, uh, bathroom or toilet facilities that are separate and appropriate, right? If there's a need for childcare or flexible mm-hmm. flexibility around things, making sure those pieces that support women to be, make their own choices within a system. Right. Um, um, I think that's more powerful than just sort of saying we want to do, I, I, I'm generally skeptical of any sort of um, like quota, you know, like we want to increase by this amount this much that that's kind of good for davos but um i've rarely seen that i've been on the working end of a lot of those things and and generally generally they range from bad to worse in terms of outcome yeah um steve i want to use i think my last question for you to pivot a little bit um to talk about um you know, where we, where we are right now, because, um, when we're recording this interview, we're just about the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, where we've had about two weeks since the disastrous, um, earthquake in Turkey. Um, you know, as someone who's spent time in these areas and worked in these areas, I'm really curious to know what you think, um, you know, where do you see, the future of of development going, you know, and and how is it going to be done in a, in an effective way when it seems like we're facing so many more crises and you know the world is becoming in some ways you know a much da- more dangerous place for for a lot of people to do with you know climate change and and climate refugees and. And I, you know, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit, you know, particularly if you have any thoughts, particularly on Russia and and where you think that's headed, because, you know, you you thought the Cold War was over, right? And we thought, <laughs> you know, 25 years ago when you when you got started, but now we're facing, you know, a lot more challenges than than I think any of us thought we would with with Russia. So I'd love to hear a little bit of your forecasting, your thoughts on these. All right, and promise the, a dollar. Um... And this this forecast will will give almost get you a cup of coffee in Singapore, but not quite. Um, but I, let, let me it's a great question. Let me break it up into two parts, the Russia piece and then maybe the development piece. I, you know, I, I, I think like most people was both appalled and heartbroken. At the at the invasion, right, like and, and was then subsequently heartened by the Ukrainian response. I think, you know, Russia is still coming to terms uh, as a nation with the idea that it's a nation and not an empire. And I Mm -hmm. think that's where you see Putin leveraging. He keeps sort of 
tying Russia's greatness to being an empire rather than Russia's greatness being like really great for a place to live and and doing good things for its people. Mm -hmm. Um, And where I see it going, um, I have a feeling um, that my intuition is that there may be some, you know, um, obviously Russia's launching an offensive now. I think Ukraine is planning to wait a little bit later. Um, I, I have a feeling this is going to end in some type of in the next year. I hope it will end, but I think it's going to profoundly change Europe because you're going to have, regardless of the outcome, win or lose, you're going to have Ukraine as the single most potent military force in Europe, Mm. more potent than Russia, you know, uh, in many ways, because they, they, you know, and I, I think the second order effects of that on Europe and the second order effects of that on Russia, we, we haven't even begun. You know, I don't even know where that's going to go, but I think it's going to be profound. Mm-hmm. I think when we think about the development space, I, I think you alluded to correctly to where things have to go. I, I, I sort of have thought for many years that by the middle to the end of the 2020s, um, most development would shift to climate, right? The, the emphasis has been on essentially poverty for the last 70 years. I think it shifts to climate. And in some ways that maybe can be a distinction without a difference because the two are interlinked in some ways, but, but not entirely. And, um, I think that it also though fundamentally changes the mindset that, that the development community has to take in that they have to think about, you know, if climate, if we're if climate is the, the the focal point, whether it's responding to climate change and adaptation and resilience or dealing with mitigation, um, the private sector has a dominant role in many of those elements. Right. That's not to say government doesn't play a big role, but but the private sector is much more front and center on on a number of those areas. And so I think it's one of those things where the development community needs to continue to evolve and I think evolve much more quickly than it has. Um, you know, I, I think the development community t- typically lag used to lag, I would say a decade, I think now lags about 20 years behind. But then what happened were two things. One was a government response, which was the government of the Philippines said, this is a good technology, we're going to decrease the regulatory barriers so that more investment can come in. And the second thing was the mobile operators saw a market opportunity and moved in at scale. And to my mind, that's success. Did Microsoft, you know, technology win out? No, but the people, you know, in these outlying islands got the connectivity they wanted. And to be honest, Microsoft's done just fine. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 that's an example of like, I, I think where if you can induce market entry into a problem, you know, it just changes things. Now that doesn't work everywhere, obviously. And I want to be, I'm humble about that, but, but where you do that, that's the type of thing where I get excited. I get excited when I see, you know, the potential around scope three emissions to both improve the lives of farmers and the livelihoods of far, smallholder farmers and address cl- climate change at the same time. That gets me excited. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, we definitely, you know, it, it, as you were both alluding to, it's a crazy world right now. And I, we may have some more crazy. We will probably will have some more craziness ahead of us, unfortunately. 
Steve, we have this little tradition on, on the podcast and maybe it's one that Siri will pick up as well on, on hers as well. I have my own questions. <laughs> oh, you have your own. Yeah, I do. It's, so it's a little bit borrow- overwhelm Steve, though. <laughs> it's a little bit borrowing from, from Tim Ferriss's uh, Tools of Titans uh, type of questions. Uh, so the, the first one is, quick one, is, is anything you've read recently that has changed the way you see the world? Um, a book that, t- as somebody who like is deeply loves Russia culture history, but learned it from probably the Russian perspective, there's a great book called the, the Gateway to Europe, which is about the history of Ukraine, but from the Ukrainian perspective, it's in English. Highly, highly, highly recommended. Totally changed my worldview about Ukraine's history. Great. We'll put it in the show notes forever. Second one is, is there a, a hack or a habit that has uh, Im- improved your life? Yeah, I would say like um, blocking out time on your calendar to do the, um, not the urgent tasks, but the important tasks and recognizing that important is as important as the urgent, because I think a lot of times we all get our calendars filled up by urgent things and not important things. That's a good one. I do that too. And then last last one is somebody who's traveled to, I don't know, close to 100 countries or so. Is there, is there a place that has special significance uh, to you? I mean, I, I um, it, this may be a more a reflection of my experience than anything else, but Kyrgyzstan... Kyrgyzstan, I think, still has magic. Um, It's a unique place in the world um, and a unique culture. And I'm deeply fond of it um, for, for, you know, not objective at all, totally subjective reason. (laughs) Um, You know, so I I would say there and and Vermont, which Vermont Mm -hmm. in in the summertime, in the fall, especially, it can can just be very um, charmingly seductive in its own in its own way. Yeah. Thank you. Thank we're, you. We're Steve. thinking maybe uh, maybe we can have our our upcoming reunion. Might Vermont might be a nice place for that for our class of '04. <laughs> well, you let me know, and I'm happy to help <laughs> uh, help organize logistics. Yeah, and actually, Steve. Um, so on on the corporate activists, we like to ask also for recommendations. So you know, I think that the book that you recommended is great. But the other thing that I I like to ask is for a shout out. So I'd love to. Um, give you the chance to mention a brand or a company or, or you know, something that that you you know who you think are doing really outstanding work. And I will note I'll note that Patagonia has been mentioned by every other guest that I've had. So feel free to mention Patagonia if you like. But if you have even a you know a small producer or someone out there that you think is doing great work that you'd like to maybe drive a little business to. I mean, it's a company that that. I, I uh, that comes straight to mind right now is, is and there it's gonna, this is going to be a controversial one is Bayer. Hmm. So Bayer is an agricultural inputs company, and they also have like Bayer aspirin, but they're mostly known around their biggest business is in a- agriculture. And I am just stunningly impressed with their vision, where they want to take things, and the sincerity of which they are attacking the, the, those questions. Hmm. I, I I've worked with many, many companies. And I, so far they've just impressed the living daylights out of me with the level of commitment, but also follow through and and thoroughness at taking on, you know, it's very easy if you're Patagonia, well, it's not very easy if you're Patagonia had to build a lot, but where they are now. Yeah. It was always in their DNA from the beginning. Always in their DNA. It's a lot harder if you're a 150 year old company with a really troubled history to be frank. (laughs) 
Um, to that, that delta, though, is much more impactful for the world in some ways. Mm. And so I think you look at, I look at folks like Patagonia as like shining the way. Yeah. But sometimes the bigger impacts can come later with companies like, you know, that, that are maybe have histories that are troubled, but are trying to do, you know, really make a sincere change to how they're doing things and, and like putting the money, the expertise, the resources behind it at, at an impressive level. So. Mm. Good one. No. Yeah, that was unexpected. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but good to know. Great. Well, Steve, you've been a fabulous guest. Um, we really appreciate your time and uh, joining us at the Coalface and um, on the Corporate Activist. Um, so just thank you so much. And we will certainly include um, a link to your book um, if people want to check that out in the show notes. Um, I think they can find that they can order that online pretty easily. And yep, on Amazon, print or Kindle. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I want to thank both of you so much for this opportunity. It was it was wonderful. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the Thank you.